Begin driving. Are we there yet? No. Are we there yet? Welcome to Noam on the Move. A podcast looking at how transportation evolved throughout the years and how disruptive technologies will continue to transform it. Here's your host, Noam Metal. Are we there yet? You have reached your destination. Welcome to another episode of Noam on the Move, and I'm really happy to have Roger Millar here with me, the Secretary of Transportation for the Washington State Department of Transportation. Roger is experienced land and use transportation engineer, planner, program manager, international reputation as an innovator with innovative approaches to conservation and development. He also chairs Ashto Council on Public Transportation, the Western Road Usage Charge Consortium, the Mobility on Demand Alliance. And the list goes on in terms of Roger's involvement across the country, and also one that definitely uh, leads in terms of speaking his mind that uh, may not always conform, I would say, to how the rest of the band marches. So, Roger, thank you for joining for this conversation today. No, it's great to be here. So, I'd like to start off on a on a personal note. When we talk about transportation, we always look at larger trends, and you know, you you manage an agency of thousands of people and billions of dollars. But mobility is something that's very personal at the end of the day of how each one of us moves around our, from our home to work. It could relate to our upbringing. What brought you into the transportation space uh, altogether? Well, that's a great question. You know, I, I, I grew up an Army brat and uh, I spent a big part of my youth in Europe and in Panama. So I saw the Panama Canal when I was nine years old and I lived in Frankfurt and I lived in Karlsruhe and I lived in Stuttgart and as a teenager and being you know 14 15 16 years old and being able to get on a train and be in Paris the next morning or get on a bus and, and be anywhere I wanted to be just struck me as as magical and then I got back to the states and it was auto centric and uh, I was in school doing in environmental engineering I got out to the west coast after school and realized, you know, from living in Portland, I was one of those people, you know, where the young go to retire. I went to Portland in my 20s and uh, spent 18 years there and really got immersed in the conversation about land use and transportation and the environment. And uh, I've, I've been in that swim ever since. So speaking of the environment, when you talk about I would say both when you ask people about Roger Millar and when you talk about Washington State, that's going to be one of the first things that comes up as a as a topic of focus. And obviously now with the new administration, that's even more in the spotlight. Tell me a little bit how you, you think of Washington State specifically in the DOT and what efforts you guys are doing as it, as it relates to that. What transformation or shift do you see in this new administration that may accelerate or change some of the focus as well? Well, you know, I I came to Washington State DOT uh, in part because uh, Jay Inslee is the governor of Washington. And and Governor Inslee appointed me secretary, and he is passionate about climate change and has been passionate about climate change for a long time. I have children. I hope they have grandchildren. I hope they have grandchildren, and I want a planet for them to, you know, thrive on. And uh, that means we we have to address this. You know, the governor has said we're the first generation that is really feeling the impact of climate change and perhaps the last generation that can do something about it. 
So here at WashDOT, we are doing our best to make a reality of the governor's vision in a transportation space. We are looking to decarbonize transportation. Here in Washington state, because we have clean energy, primarily hydropower, which is far from perfect, but it's not coal, it's not nuclear. We have renewable energy in Washington state. Most of our greenhouse gas, most of our climate change footprint is from the transportation space. And decarbonizing transportation is, is one way to address that. And then addressing the relationship between land use and transportation is another way that we're looking to address that. So we're um, decarbonizing the Washington State Ferry Fleet. We have uh, three boats that we're in the process of converting to hybrid electrics uh, that combined consume 5 million gallons of diesel a year. And the rest of the fleet is going to be after that. But we're going to we're going to get them all to the diesel electric hybrids. We're uh, the second high. We have the second highest number of electric buses in the United States, and we're looking for more. And we're doing that because of the positive climate change impact of those investments. But we're also reinvesting in transportation. Firm believer in you know state of good repair and the importance of keeping the system in a state of good repair. The buses that we're bringing in are replacing tired old diesel buses with new electric buses that will get a a life cycle out of. The the boats that we're retrofitting are at their midlife and we want 30 more years out of them and we'll get 30 more years out of them, but they'll be clean and they'll be quiet. And and that makes a huge difference. I'm excited about the, the Biden administration and Secretary Buttigieg because they get this too. For the longest time, we were alone in this space in terms of having a federal partner. If, if anything, they were pushing the other direction. And, and now I think we have a partner that gets it and a partner that's ready to act. So I'm excited. So a follow-up on that, if you think about the entire state of Washington, that you're, you're running a transportation agency in charge of all the state, you really almost can split it into two between the urban and rural areas and some of the some of the demands, or maybe not. But I'm curious your thought when you talk about land use and some of these programs, how does that priority or even desires, if you will, differ uh, for the public from more urban areas that you look at versus the, the rural uh, parts of Washington State? I don't split anything that way. It's all interdependent. It's not urban or rural. It's urban and rural. It's not Seattle and Eastern Washington. It's Seattle and Eastern Washington. Eastern Washington is an amazing place. I spent a lot of my career east of the mountains and love that environment. But a little pint of cherries that are grown in the Wenatchee Valley, you know, they're on the Columbia River right in the middle of Washington State. They're picked and sorted and chilled and trucked to the airport in Seattle, where they're put on an airplane and flown to Korea, where they sell for $50. <laughs> so that orchardist in Wenatchee needs the urban to succeed. And the urban longshoreman, the trucking company owner, the shipper, 
they need the products. You know, we, we move wine, we move wheat, we move uh, fruit uh, from the east through our ports, and we bring product back. We're a very trade-centric place. We move a lot of the entire, you know, northwestern quarter of the United States trade through Washington State. All of that comes from very rural places. It's coming from Wyoming and North Dakota and places like that. So we don't see it as a, an either or. We see it as an interdependent whole. And, you know, we, we talk about public transportation and everybody thinks urban. Public transportation is even more important to rural communities than urban communities. There are, when I was in Montana, there's a group called the uh, North Central Montana Transportation Company. They, they're a, an, an agency that runs buses from the Native American tribes and the rural communities into the big city of Great Falls, Montana. And prior to that bus being in place, people didn't have access to medical care. And so I, t- I talked to people who were riding the bus that said, this is the first time in three generations that we've been able to take our family to the dentist. And that was because of public transportation investment in rural America. So there is no urban-rural split. It's a false split that people, you know, there are a lot of people that are interested in generating controversy. What I'm interested in is generating synergies and and, and making that work. Yeah, and I think it's important in that note to mention even, I mean, COVID in that regard, because the whole aspect of telecommuting and the, the aspect of distance, so how we think about the workplace and where you need to be has shifted completely. So you could be in a quote unquote rural or suburban area or even completely remote from where your workplace is. And nowadays that 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 works in a connected environment. So your point's well taken on the interconnectivity, both of the supply chain aspect of it, but also even just the the workforce itself is shifting in its nature. Well, the supply chain, the, uh, the workforce, the cultural, the recreational aspects, there's all kinds of synergies. And you have to remember, there are a lot of people that can't telework. And a lot of the COVID impact in Washington state has been in rural, you know, in meatpacking plants and fruit packing plants and places like that where, where people have to work. And, you know, my, my agency, we have uh, close to 6,800 employees and roughly half of them have been teleworking full-time since March of last year. March 16th, we all went home. But half of them can't. It's it's snowing right now. You can't plow snow from your home office. You can't fix potholes. You can't respond to crashes on the highway. You can't run trains. You can't run ferry boats. You can't bring customers in. We have a lot of people in our economy that need to be there, and they need affordable and frequent and reliable transportation to be there. But for the folks who can telework, the changing of the modern work environment and the changing of expectations, one of the things I really see that's going to make that rural, urban, symbiotic relationship work really well, a lot of rural communities in the Western United States were built around a mill or a mine. They were resource extraction communities. And the prime generator of revenue in those communities went away. The mill's gone. The mine's closed. The downtown's there. All the bones are there. The housing's there. The the outdoors is a beautiful place, but there's no generator of revenue. With broadband and telework, we can bring revenue to those communities that can be multiplied 
in those communities and used to make them vibrant again, economically vibrant again. So I want to shift gears a bit to, to take a point you mentioned responding. Something that has to be done physically is responding to crashes as an example from your last sentence there. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, we've seen even throughout COVID with reduced congestion that the overall safety, the numbers when we look at the stats around driver safety and traffic fatalities has remained staggeringly high. And even beyond COVID, if we take a larger view on it and look at the number of traffic fatalities and the decline or where we stand over the last 20 years, there may be some reduction, but I don't think anyone would agree that it's satisfactory to where we want to be. So why is it that we're not able to get to a point where we're, we're talking about traffic fatalities as a small problem? It's always going to be a big problem because we're talking about families here, but I say in a larger context, something that is not in the spotlight like it is today. How, how can we haven't been able to tackle that over the last 20, 30, 40 years? Well, you know, there, are, there are a lot of reasons for that. You know, to me, the biggest one is we haven't measured it the right way. There are think tanks and consultants and universities, you name it, every, every week or so, I get a report about how congested traffic in Seattle is. And every one of those reports talks about what an impact it has on the economy. And that impact is around $4.5 billion a year that we waste stuck in traffic. That constant drumbeat of information has resulted in legislators and mayors and city council members and county commissioners and governors and the like insisting over time that we invest money in solving that financial problem. Crashes are an individual tragedy for the individual, the family, the friends, the co-workers, but all of us. That's the interesting thing about one, of, one thing I know about Washington State is every Washingtonian thinks they're the best driver in the world. <laughs> and they're not going to be in a crash. Or if they're in a crash, it isn't going to be their fault. So, yeah, that tragedy happened, but it'll never happen to me until it does. What I've been doing as secretary is I've been looking at okay, we know how many deaths we have. We know how many serious injuries we have. We know the minor injuries. We know the property damage. What's the cost to the economy of that? Now, again, congestion's about $4.5 billion a year in Washington state. Crashes are $15 billion a year. And we haven't been talking about them that way. We're investing, my, my budget is roughly a billion dollars a year chasing congestion. My safety program is $50 million. Wow. But the safety impact on the economy is greater than three times the congestion impact on the economy. We manage what we measure. And what we're doing here in Washington State is, is I think, measuring it the right way. The tragedies are the tragedies. There's no question about that. But they add up to a monetary cost that can be quantified and produced and displayed and hopefully managed to our benefit. Yeah, I think in a way you're saying it's the economy stupid, right? It's the if we focus, if we shift it from trying to look at it as a broader problem and connect it to what touches our pockets, the economy and taxpayer money, where it's going to, 
it, it can resonate more to the legislator to put an emphasis on it. That's staggering that only 50 million when you compare it to the amount of emphasis that's put on congestion reduction. Safety is our first job. You know, we talk about that all the time. But in terms of money purposely invested solely in addressing safety issues, 50 million bucks. Wow. And, you know, the, it, it is a, a question. When you look at our budget, we have a $3.6 billion a year budget. Why should I ask a taxpaying family? Why should I ask a taxpaying business to pay money for this $3.6 billion entity? Well, we're trying to take care of that $4.5 billion congestion problem. Yeah, yeah. But we never have talked about safety that way, and, and now we are. Speaking of taxpayer money, right, when, when they think about how their money is spent at a DOT, they don't want to think of the DOT as a casino. So lowering the risk to a minimum as po- minimum possible that sometimes doesn't jive with innovation. So as you think about pushing forward into trying out new technologies, whether it's on the electric side or other innovation around AI, how do you balance that challenge between wanting to move forward and progress on new technologies that inherently have some risk in it, right? As you're trying something new that hasn't been vetted over 20, 30 years versus staying your ground on what's known and comfortable and been proven. That's a huge issue in public service. You know, I, my, my friend Shailen Bat, who runs ITS America, I'm the vice chair of his board. We've been friends for a while. He used to run the DOT in Colorado. He says that, you know, in the private sector, you always hear about fail fast, fail often, fail fast. In the public sector, it's fail once. You know, <laughs> you, don't, you don't have that. It, it, it's, it's a little different. What we do at Washdot, we, we are not risk averse. I mean, relatively speaking, when I came on board, we were building the largest diameter deep bore tunnel in the world. At the same time, we were building the longest floating bridge in the world. And we own four of the five longest floating bridges in the world. And, you know, is that, and I, I, I go, well, why didn't anybody else on these? You know, so we do stuff that is on the cutting edge. Because our topography is different, because our citizenry is is demanding and innovative, we have a tech-based economy. You know, Boeing's been here forever. We've got Amazon, we've got Microsoft, and we all got our all full of energy because we got Starbucks. You know, we've got we've got all these innovators in the state, and so our people, our elected officials, are more receptive to that. At the same time, uh, they don't like failure. Uh, particularly when their tax money is involved. So we have to be very careful how we innovate. We partner with uh, our universities through the University Transportation Centers. There, We have a big research budget, you know, relatively speaking, for a DOT. And we're, we're doing that work. Uh, we pilot stuff. Uh, we find communities and, and people that want to share a little risk with us, and, and we make those things happen. That said, we have also had, we have four of the longest floating bridges in the world, four of the five longest. Two of them, parts of them have sunk. And that was that was an issue at the time. Uh, we had the largest diameter deep bore tunnel in the world, and Bertha was stuck for three years. And we took that heat. You, you have to, to know that heat's going to be there. And, you know, I've been fortunate that we have elected leadership that, understands that uh, when you innovate, there are some, sometimes some, some consequences and we, we do the best with what we got. 
Yeah, I think dealing with the concept of failure is probably in government is for for elected officials probably one of the most challenging things to explain, right? And and understand why it's it's just part of evolution of innovation in general. It doesn't come without failure. You'd like it to be without failure, but it's part of the equation almost always. Well, and you learn for you learn from it, and you're better for it. You know, we have uh, snow all the time. And some storms we handle really well and sometimes not so well, you know, and it, it because the the weather is so um, incredibly varied, you know, is this is it going to stick or not? Is it going to ice up or not? Uh, we've become really sophisticated at that from our failures. You know, we aren't going to be building a whole bunch of deep bore tunnels anytime soon, but we have a we're, we're subject matter experts in that, you know, at this point. Um, we are, are, are very, uh, big on, uh, data and, uh, you know, our traffic management center in shoreline, the one for the central Puget sound is, is pretty darn sophisticated. We have uh, close to 10,000 sensors in place on our highway network in the central Puget sound. And we're working again with the UTC and the city and others on a, a virtual coordination center where we're going to link all of our TMCs virtually to do incident management while at the same time flexing our traffic management and our social media and other outreach techniques to move people around the problems as we address the problems. I'm, I'm excited about that. That is, uh, uh, it's an innovation that has some risk associated with it. The potential reward is such that everybody's in. And I'm looking forward to some exciting stuff. You know, let's take a, an eye now to the future beyond the, the curve of the horizon, if you will. And so mm-hmm. if you were to look from within your role at the DOT, what is the next big thing, right, in transportation? I'm talking monumental shifts in how we move or behave and as it relates to transport that perhaps we're not thinking about. So obviously everyone's talking about autonomous vehicles and connectivity that's at the forefront but what are some of the concepts or changes that will be disruptive that from your perspective perhaps are not currently in the spotlight and will be soon well you know when i first got involved or re-involved in its america i was around back when they had the intelligent vehicle highway system discussion and i remember a conference back in the late 80s early 90s in portland and there was this panel of CEOs and everybody was talking about connected and autonomous vehicles. And I said, you know, that's that's Henry Ford's famous faster horse. You know, we, we, we're all here in DOTs talking about cars. There are bread and butter at the end of the day. Cars and trucks are bread and butter. The thing that's going to be different is that innovators, entrepreneurs are going to go. They're going to cut out the middleman, us, and they're going to go right to the customer. What's the customer want? And, you know, this technology that we're using to do this podcast right now, when we all went home and started using Zoom and Teams and stuff like that, that's transportation. I think the the investment and the things that are going to happen in the virtual reality space are going to be game changing. I really do look forward to someday stepping into the Star Trek holodeck, you know, (laughs) and, and having that experience. The, the other thing that's coming that um, a lot of us in our space are watching, you know what, uh, I talked to my, my colleagues in Michigan, the Michigan DOT, 
they're car focused. Well, why not? They're in you know, Detroit's right there. That's that's their focus. When you look at Washington State, what's here? Boeing, Microsoft, Amazon. I'm looking up, and, and I'm thinking that uh, you know unmanned aerial vehicles are going to be. They're coming. They're here. That people are are developing them. They're developing the technology. They're seeking the permissions. And and like any of the stuff, the technology isn't the issue. It's the policy discussions and the socialization and and addressing the risk that you know brings these things to market. Why be stuck in traffic when you can fly over it? Why have a, a van driving around the neighborhood where a, a, a gadget can drop the box at your front door? People are ready to do that. There are things like that that are going to really change the space. Well, I've been talking a lot about broadband recently mm-hmm. as a transportation investment. Our mission is moving people and goods and services. It's not about moving cars and trucks and even buses and light rail vehicles. It's about the end, not the means. Means will change. You can almost translate that to the chips world, the Moore's Law. Like uh, think about how they used to talk about the processing power of chips, you know, growing mm-hmm. exponentially over the years. And the anecdote or the equivalent the analogy, analogy to that to transportation is we kept thinking about increasing capacity and how we solve for getting people from point A to point B, literally. I think generally, we, it's safe to say we've solved that problem. You have a means to get from point A to point B. There needs to be improvement, whether you do it through transit or through private vehicle or through plane. The question now is about the utilization, so the efficiency of that process. How do we start? Because to your, I mean, I've heard you talk about this in the past. We can't build our way out of the capacity issue that we have here. It's the next advances are going to come about with better utilization of the resources we have and getting the same amount of people or more people on the same amount of roads that we have or, or transportation networks. Well, and, and thinking about, I, I was, again, in the ITS world when I was over in Copenhagen at the World Congress and got to meet a lot of the, the Danes, the people at the city. I, I went there twice in one year, which was really cool. The first time I went was a, uh, a master class in bicycling as a transportation. I mean, I wasn't master bicyclist, but how you use cycling as a part of the transportation system. And then I went back for the World Congress. And the Danes were, we don't want to be the techiest place on the planet. We want to be the most livable place on the planet. And, you know, I talk uh, with people about, we want to harness technology for the future we want. We don't want to put technology's harness on and, and, and be slaves to it. Getting from here to there is great. I live in a 20-minute neighborhood. Everything I need, I can deal with within a 20-minute walk or a bicycle ride. I still have a car. I still go beyond that, but I don't have to. There are a lot of people in Washington State that don't have that privilege, and we can work towards that. Do I need to go from here to there? We can be more efficient about how we move people from here to there. We also need to think about the relationships between here and there. And, you know, the telework thing is beginning to do that. The virtual learning thing is beginning to do that. And we also need to wean ourselves from a 19th century agrarian calendar as we do our business. 
Our ski mountains this weekend, with a big storm coming in, all the rest of the mountains are going to be packed with people. Mm-hmm. I guarantee you the snow will be just as good on Tuesday as it was on Saturday. <laughs> and it'll be empty. And when you look around the state, about a quarter of the households have kids in them. So why are we skiing on Saturday and Sunday? Do we, you know, we, we, need, to, we need to also think about time in all of this. Interesting. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's a lot of concepts I think that are converging here that in some ways we're at a tipping point or in a convergence time, maybe helped by COVID that we're going to start seeing shifts in how the workplace looks like and how we think about, you know, transportation and options of when we go into work and how we go. This is fascinating. So Roger, I want to thank you for joining me today in this conversation and sharing some of your, your insights. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. 